fair warning, um, I'm not nice and I don't seek to be respectable. I'm not asking y'all for anything because y'all can't and won't be both my savior and my oppressor. You get one life and you all in this room have chosen profits over people and that's pathetic. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast that is not your escape. I'm sorry. There are things to talk about. Not this week. There are week. things going on. Okay, so this is Monday. I think we pulled back the curtain a, a lot uh, in this second season. This is Monday, right now, when we're recording. You're hearing this on Wednesday. I don't know what's going... This is, you know, wasn't there a movie called The Day After Tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! But was there not? There was. There oh, was. Goodness. I thought you were talking about uh, the day after yesterday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> shout out to y'all! Look, if you have decided to take the time um, this tumultuous week, whatever is going to happen the day after tomorrow, to join us to talk about some things and to explore some music a little bit, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be talking about stuff so just oh, no. fyi oh yeah there will definitely be that um this opus of triloquy is brought to you in part by derek minchin and blue Co- clock records presenting the incredible his uh new album that's coming out uh, if you remember a few opuses back i had uh, derek mention on that album is coming out on a secret date um i i read i i can't give any details there i have taken a listen uh through tracks of the album it's some incredible stuff and that's coming out so you can uh, learn more uh, about Derek Minchin and uh, Blue, Co- Blue Clock Records. I don't know why I can't say that. Blue Clock Records by um, listening back to um, his featured opus. Um, there's a link on the Triloquy uh, website, triloquy.org, that will connect you uh, to the, to his Facebook and uh, everything you need. So huge shout out uh, and thank you to uh, Derek Minchin. I wanted to, I, I have a, a little list here. So are you? Uh, no, I'm just getting out of the way. Take, take it, man. The floor is yours. Um, huge shout out um, to uh, the Polaris Orchestra. Um, we have a collaboration coming up that I think I'll um, be able to talk a little bit more about next week since there's a little bit of time there. But I wanted to uh, make sure I shout out them out. I wanted to shout out the Manhattan School of Music for naming me one of their artist scholars. I don't know if I've ever been called a scholar, Scott. So. Oh, come on. Gentleman and a scholar? Nobody's ever said you're a gentleman and a scholar? <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a scholar. Maybe not the gentleman part. I don't oh, know. hey. All right. Shout out to uh, Manhattan School of Music. More on that coming. Um, later on uh, this school year or however we're viewing it this season um, I want to uh, do a couple collegiate shout outs shout out to uh, Cal State Long Beach uh, spoke to a number of their students last week and helped announce their decolonized curriculum so Scott these wow. these conversations we're hap- having you know um, these these actions the real part of it is happening so Cal State Long Beach they have um, uh, decolonized and that's the word that they use decolonized their music history curriculum so the kids coming up are going to actually learn um some some, some stuff yeah nice yeah, so shout out to them i want to shout out at the university of memphis as you're listening to this um today um on wednesday i have a talk with them looking forward to oh my goodness that's going to be a fun one i'm so looking forward to that presentation for folks at my one of my alma maters um i have uh, i want to shout out uh, the gateways festival that's coming up next week um i'll talk a little bit more about that on next 
next week's opus. But uh, please be sure to uh, check out all of the uh, events for the virtual festival at gatewaysfestival.org. Um, no, sorry, I think it's gatewaysmusicfestival.org, excuse me. Um, there's going to be Gateways Radio, which uh, you can learn more about. Yeah, you've been working and, pretty hard on that, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's coming up. I want to uh, give a shout-out to KVNO-FM in your uh, old stomping grounds. What, what? Yeah, the um, the launch of a show that I uh, developed in collaboration with them, The Sound of 13, uh, premiered last week. As you're listening to this, two episodes have gone. And I got notification today that it's uh, going into to national syndication so that's kind of cool to think about me back over the airwaves you know even if it's uh, not uh, in my old position but you know they're talking about classical music so-called classical music and mm-hmm. um history the 13th amendment uh, i want to shout out shenandoah conservatory um uh, for uh, having me for their double read day uh that's coming up uh this sunday if you're a bassoonist you can learn more about that um on their website and uh yeah i think that's all i got for now booked and busy i have just one quick <laughs> shout grateful. out thank I, you you've got a lot on the ball man a lot of plates spinning uh, I want to send a quick shout out to my dog Radar, whom you might hear in the background chewing on his bone. You know, <laughs> he has no studio etiquette. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to like make you too, um, you know, I am legendy yet. Because again, the day after tomorrow, <laughs> we don't Who know. Knows, man. But at least you already got Radar. You know? Right. <laughs> At least. Um, the uh, In the downbeat uh, of this opus, you heard from a woman named K.J. Brooks out of Kansas City, um, Missouri. If you haven't uh, taken a, a listen to what she had to say at the uh, police commissioner's meeting, I think that's uh, what it was. It was a long title, but yeah, that's the gist of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, please take a look at that. We're going to touch back on that uh, on the triloquy. But for now, let's go ahead and get into our first movement. <laughs> All right, Scott. So do you want to start with the violin professor trafficking minors or the impending race war? Which which is first? God, that's our choices. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at uh, either one, really. I'll tell I, you. I'm, I'm tense. Uh, let, let's let's get the let's let, well, let, let, let's start. Let, let's start light, actually. So but before we get to either <laughs> one of those, Scott, I got a little bit of tea. That um, <laughs> that I that I wanted to share, and that uh, a listener wanted uh, me to share. Um, they asked me not to share um, their name, but um, I heard from a little birdie. So this is what the message says: uh, My orchestra has made the unfortunate decision to perform the anthem at the beginning of our classics series tomorrow. This is a few days ago. I voiced my disappointment to the general manager uh, from the general manager. Not playing it will have a worse effect. Okay, deferring to a tremendously conservative donor is what uh, the the person wrote here. Mm. I am bitterly disappointed they chose this route. It was the perfect opportunity to omit it. I will wear my Black Lives Matter button proudly at the meeting. So I did a little digging and um, seeing based on the dates that she uh, that they were giving me. Um, <laughs> my, my bad. She OK, that she was uh, giving me uh that based on the dates and stuff, they were talking about the Florida Orchestra. And of course, I go to their site and it says the Florida Orchestra believes in the inspirational power of music to unite, connect and heal us all. We stand united against racism and injustice. We stand in support of the black community. So um, as we get further and further from the 
horrific events of the summer, it seems like we're getting further and further away from the idea of real action being required, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, being, excuse me, being at the center of conversations. Um, I find it upsetting, again, that uh, this person, you know, is letting me know um, these things, uh, again, in in um, discretion. Um, you know, I, I can find out, you know, because I have the Internet and I'm in the biz, you know, that mm-hmm. this the Florida orchid. That's my guess anyway, based on the dates uh, of this um, to have this statement, but just be unwilling to consider, um, you know, the harm of that song. And I know, I don't know if we've done a really, a really big deep dive on the anthem, but man, so much has happened since the 4th of July. It would have been then if we did it at all. Right. And 4th of July even felt different this year. I mean, it wasn't really celebratory. It was just sort of, well, this is what it is. And I think it's a shame. And I, I said this years ago, I think it's a shame that, um, you know, the American flag, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, you know, have just been enshrined in a way where we can't really acknowledge the truths behind them um, without wealthy donors getting mad and, and pulling their money. It's mm. I, I think it's too bad. You know, the uh, Louisville Orchestra, I believe it was a Louisville Orchestra, um, announced, and it's happened by this point, that they were starting their season with Lift Every Voice, you know. So there are orchestras that are doing it. And, of course, Louisville is the same place where uh, we were talking about Daniel Gillum, who went off right. <laughs> on, the, right. on the races listeners. You know, so maybe there's something in the water down there in Louisville. But further down in, in Florida, unfortunately, it does not seem like the case. What if, what if they played both? And see, that's weird to me too because I don't know. I'm I'm at, I'm asked, I'm curious. Yeah. Well, if if you play "Lift Every Voice" next to the Star Spangled Banner, you know what does it mean to say? Well, we still have to yeah, you know, acknowledge yeah. this past that's you know problematic and, and and X Y and Z. But you know, let's also be equitable. I, I you know how I get down. I think we need to get rid of it. Um, certainly uh, in orchestras, but. You know, um, it's it's a shame about uh, about these donors. I forgot in the announcements to to talk about the guest today, uh, Sydney Hobson, uh, who works in uh, corporate America and in politics. Um, when it comes to helping them um, uh, be able to justify giving to arts organizations and uh, throwing money at arts initiatives because it could be beneficial for them on the fiscal side. So, you know, that's going to be an interesting conversation. But, you know, thinking about that donor um, reminded me of the conversation. Something that you'll hear Sydney say is that when you're attached to old money, more times than not, you're attached to old ideas. Old thinking. So, yeah, and old thinking. So it's that's what these orchestras need to let go of. And um, I'm sorry that this musician has to perform wherever they perform. It might not even be the Florida Orchestra, but I mean, I'm sitting here looking at this. Um, I'm sorry that that has to be the uh, reality. Um, and it's a shame that this person even feels uncomfortable speaking forward because of of, of what could happen. You right. know, does that sound like the arts to you? Does that 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 doesn't sound like a creative space to me? It sounds like something very strict, oppressive in, in the box. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I don't know. How about we hear a little bit of "Lift Every Voice" just to just to clear the air a little bit. Cleanse the palate.
I have um, one to add that's going to be the light spot okay. <laughs> in this movement. Sure. Um, you can feel all of this energy in the air. I don't know if you want to call it electricity. It's just like, you know, this anxiousness, this desperation, mm-hmm. the um, depression, <laughs> sure. all, uh, fear. All of these things are just sort of hanging in the air and you can feel it. And it's. I was thinking about that as I ran across this story about a vibrating suit. I'm listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. But um, I saw this uh, last week. I, no, when I was on vacation, I saw this story about a filmmaker named Chase Burton who used to lay on the f- on his bedroom floor and feel his brother's garage band you know rocking out yeah and he would feel it all through his body mm-hmm. i should mention uh chase is deaf and so he has designed a suit that allows people who have uh diminished hearing or they're deaf whatever it is to experience music as an all-over body experience that sounds better <laughs> uh, right <laughs> And and what you know what what would you like what music would you plug in what would you want to feel right now I mean they're all different kinds because think about like some um, so called smooth jazz vibrating all over your body versus like some hard metal rock or something you know like getting that feeling versus you know going all the way back in history the symphony that you know Beethoven you know. Uh, wrote thinking about that reality and you know they say by the time he died uh, not to bring up Beethoven for too long but by the time he died you know he was doing just that uh, putting his uh, face against the floor or whatever and feeling the vibrations what the things that could be explored there I mean yeah the performance arts now the thing is can we how how can we brought well first of all accessibility to the people who um, can most benefit from it before we start having fun you know and t- and, t- and, and taking over the ride yeah, you that, know that's a good point <laughs> so so once that is done you know um, how do we um, I wonder what could be a real um, accessible way to expose more people to that so um, I'm I'm thinking maybe not a concert hall full of these vibrator chairs, but you know maybe you can bring them home and plug them in, and you know with technology you could even be synced up with people all around the world and wow. feeling the same vibrations. Okay. And wow, yeah, it's like that song. Yeah. Isn't there a song called "Good Vibrations" or something? By the Beach Boys. Okay. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the yeah, you know, the mu- music from last century. I-, I think I had heard of it before, but <laughs> that's a good song, The Beach Boys. Anyway, that's, it, that's it looks, really dope. We'll, we'll put up a picture. We'll put up a link to the story. But it looks, I don't think that this is going to be something like they'll build into a, a concert hall or a theater. It looks pretty involved. It's like a harness. Yeah, okay. You know, so I imagine you're feeling... Um, more low end or bass, you know, probably closer to your feet. I, I, I'm guessing. I don't know how. Um, I don't know how that would work. Maybe right down your spine. But it looks involved. I don't think it's something that they would be installing in a whole concert hall anytime soon. But it's it's def- right. Um, but it's definitely something that I hope. Get, is getting more attention than not, you know, we, there's a lot of stuff that we sort of just pay for and research and whatever. I would consider this one of those, 
equitable things. You know, uh, equity is not just racial or or when it comes to gender, you know, when we talk about people with different abilities, that's very right. important to acknowledge. So I'm all about yeah, this. Who spend, spend the money on this instead of everything else they spend the money on. <laughs> who, who, who knows? You know, it, it might get developed to where it's something that is just incorporated into clothing, you know, in the future. Wow, yeah. Don't you think? Isn't that, isn't that like the next step? Yeah. 2050 if we get there? Before they put our chips in, you know. Oof. Or maybe the chips will just make our bodies vibrate. Oh, <laughs> we're going full Black Mirror now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and and you, you mentioned Black Mirror, so we might as well jump right in. So there's this violinist oh, out God. here wilding. Let me read. This is from the Michigan Daily. A former University of Michigan music professor indicted on sex charges involving minor. Let me read this a little bit. Stephen Ships, a retired professor at School of Music, Theater, and Dance, has been formally charged with two counts of transporting a female minor across state lines with the intention of engaging in sexual conduct, according to a Thursday announcement from U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider. U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider. So I'll post that uh, for y'all to read and to uh, dig into. Uh, formerly at the University of North Carolina at the Arts. Uh, he was in your stopping grounds for a minute, University of Nebraska, Omaha in the late 70s. Um, these these professors are... Are dangerous? Well, what I'm, what, well, first of all, the relationship between student and teacher and music is very intimate very anyway. Close. You yeah. know, because this is like your sensei. This is your guru. Um, and... To take advantage of that relationship, um, especially at those those ages, you know, think back to being 18, 19, 20. If there's and, and we're talking about someone underage, so 16, 17, think about being 16 years old and some grown up man who's playing you admire and, you know, who you admire and, and artistically and in other ways is also trying to, you know, be sexy with you. The grooming and the the horrors mm. of of what that really means. I, I don't, I've kind of gotten out of the habit of just naming people and shaming people for the sake of shaming them. And I don't think this is that as much as it's just putting people on. You you have to, I, I don't know what there is to be said. I would, well, I almost want to say out of my mouth is you have to be careful, but it's not a, a woman or, or any other uh, victim of sexual uh, abuse's fault that that has happened. So I can't say be careful no, it's as much as I can just say. These white men are dangerous. You know, now that I think about it, there was a woman at the station that I used to work at ages ago that I told her that I was taking drum lessons from this guy nearby. And she immediately piped in like, oh yeah, I studied with him. I have had his tongue in my mouth more <gasps> times than I care to remember. And y'all were kids? She would have been probably 17. Oh my but, god. You know, he was well into his 50s at that point. Oh you know, my god. Which is gross. I can't believe that anybody who has perpetrated all of this stuff with the way that we, things have progressed and the way that things are being found out and reported, anyone who has done this, how are they not already uh on a archipelago down in the you know, near Fiji? How how has have people not with that know that this is coming? How have they not already packed up and tried to disappear? Well, I think a lot of these people just think they can get by um, for so long because of their influence or what they mean to this organization or X, Y, and Z. And I don't mean to hit too close to home, okay? But there's been some sexual predators in, you know, your building over there. And, and for folks who know all that story and X, Y, and Z, but um, 
this this has to stop. This has to stop. And I don't know what there is to say about it, but it it, it just has to stop. To to add this to all of the other horrors of um of of 2020, you know, just find finding out about this and think about all the ones that are still out there. Think about the ones we don't know about yet. All I of mean, these oboe and and horn. And I'm not indicting nobody because I don't know anything. I was just spitting out examples. But you know, all these professors. Um, and and uh, music teachers continuing to take care of these, uh, take care, take advantage of these children. I know it, man. I can't believe it. I'm not even, I don't know if we can even give that any music as much as I just want to put that on people's radars. Again, that uh, that article will be in the description and on uh, triloquy.org. Um, uh, maybe maybe there is a is a sound we can uh, get get for that man. By the way, we haven't been putting um, accidentals by anything, but, you know, it's just a flat week. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. were, were, any the, were any of these good stories? Well, I don't the, know the vibrating about the suit. Vibrator. So that's a sharp. That's a, that's, that's a nice sharp. You get those sharp vibrations. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not trying to make fun, fun of it. I, think, I do think that's revolutionary for real. I do. I mean, think think about. I once knew a, um, and not to get too off the track here, but when I was an undergrad, I think my, as I call it, my victory lap, my my fifth year, uh, there was a flute player who uh, her hearing, um, she was hearing impaired, but would hold her the head joint of her flute with one of her hands every now and again, and that's how she tuned it, like like when mm. she was you know tuning yeah uh, that's what she did so the the vibration i think that's revolutionary for not only for um you know principally for uh people with hearing impairments but also to broaden our you know so-called vision of of music you know we we can we talk about the blind composers you know joaquin rodrigo and, and, right. and those people you know deaf composers or yeah i, I think uh I, I i want to be a part of um adding different abilities into the conversation more. And that's just going to take, you know, more proximity and research and, you know, equitable work on my part. But right. I, so I just wanted to name that. I do think that is very important and really incredible that that is being thought about and, and developed. I, I really like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so that was the good. But uh, this last, but before we got into a little bit mu- a bit of music, we have to at least acknowledge this whole voting and election and X, Y, and Z. So first and foremost, what was your experience voting this year? And how was it different from other years? Just the, you know, nuts and bolts of uh, putting in a ballot. Mm-hmm. Not knowing the state of things, mm-hmm. you know, not really having... A good idea of what it was going to look like. I went ahead and requested an absentee ballot, and I sent mine in. Uh, I don't know two days after I got it. So I've I've already checked online. It's been accepted. It's going to be counted. I've been done for a while. Um, I didn't even watch the debates. <laughs> you know yeah. what? What's the point? <clears throat> yeah. It's not going to change any minds. Not, it didn't change my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also requested the absentee ballots. Um, didn't mail them in. Uh, we filled them out and took them down. And um, and actually, the I mean, we waited in line, but the only reason we waited for you know the little twenty minutes that we did was because the um, Ramsey County um, building was restricting how many people were in at a time. You know, because of COVID and well, all sure. that. So I, I appreciate the safety. The line for people. Who had not already, who didn't already have their absentee? That was a long line, and that was like an hour's long line. But right. People were standing in it. Um, 
for the early voting, but before I left uh, the House, just looking at the news a little bit, the early voting uh, data that I saw said we're already up to about 70 percent of 2016 total. Total. So, so does that mean that a lot of the people who voted on Election Day last time, like me, you know, I voted on November 2nd or, or whatever it was. Same. Um, them have most of us already voted and we're not going to see that much more tomorrow as we record, you know, not that much on Tuesday, election day. That's what all the wags are talking. Oh, That's what this all this is really tomorrow. This is really happening. Yeah. Like, uh, the more I talk about it, the more it really gets. That's oh. what, that's what a lot of pundits are talking because some States have a lot of people that vote by mail who are, who registered Republican, mm. you know, so there, there could be either a red or a blue mirage is what they're calling it. And then, uh, you know, the, in-person voting is going to be known right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's some places that aren't even going to start counting until the polls close. So, And then at the last minute, you know, uh, I know Wisconsin um, and maybe Minnesota as well, like a few days ago, they said, you know, your vote is not, your mail-in ballot is not going to be counted after election day. Right. So you have to walk it in or vote in person. There was some drive-up, uh, drive-by voting in Texas. 127,000 ballots were being contested by some members of the GOP and I think some wealthy donors. I, I don't, I don't want to quote that. Uh, I know that some uh, some reps, GOP reps, were involved in trying to get those thrown out. Mm-hmm. And a judge uh, didn't even listen to the case. They're like, no, we're counting them. Don't even try to play. I hope that by the time this comes out, it's it's so weird for like Monday to be our recording day because it seems like a lot of stuff always happens on Tuesdays. So we're, so we're got to come all the way back around the week. But, but anyway, um, <clears throat> I hope that when the numbers come out later this week about the vote that the numbers themselves below 2016 out of the water. It will be really exciting to see like a 70% like voting rate in the United States because usually it's something oh, like yeah. 30 or something, yeah. you know, something, something low. I want to see big numbers, but if I'll even be optimistic and say when we see those big numbers, I'm going to be like, where were y'all? Where were y'all four years ago? Well, I guess there's a lot of people who have become, become of age. But, yeah, you know, where, where were y'all just sitting at home? Was this this was OK last time? Here's my question. So if there was any meddling that had anything to do with the last election, mm-hmm. right, why wouldn't they just do the misinformation campaign that people are talking about now that we know that? I think India, China, and Russia all are trying to get their fingers in, right? Why wouldn't they just get us all whipped up to where we're hating each other and then take their hands off the wheel? You'd be watching cable news. <laughs> Why? What? 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 What would we? We would shoot the asses off of each other first. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. have to do anything. Well, but you know, don't talk about that too much in jest because no, the, I'm the, asking the stores are preparing. I'm hip. For, yeah, uh, you know, over on my end of town, I went into Target. The other, you know, because Target learned from last time. You know, um, that folks act. You know, that, that that folks ain't taking it. Right. Um, I went up in there the other day. 
uh, to get some groceries or something. And like the Mac products, all of the expensive computers or stuff, those have been like taken from the sales room floor. They Walmart took all their ammunition, all the guns, out. and they yep. probably got them locked up in cages or or in beds. It's of not like you can't or, get them. It's not like I mean, you can't get them. But, you but can just have to ask. But the little you know cell phone displays have been removed, so mm. they're preparing for people to just act crazy and. It felt so weird, and I'm going to put myself out here right now. It felt really weird to go into Target and to price baseball bats, and I'm not playing any baseball. No. <laughs> you know, it's a, this is a fucking weird time, yeah. and I hope everything is chill for the people and the institutions that it needs to be chill for. I'll say it that way. That's a nice thought. <laughs> So in closing, <laughs> I, I, what, what else can I say? What else is there to say? Um, we can't say go vote because, you know, I hope you went and voted. I, I, hope I hope I hope you voted. I hope that um, you're staying safe. If shit is going down as, as this is um, out, you know, in your respective townships, cities, whatever, um, be safe. And also um, Black Lives Matter. So let's just go ahead and um, talk about some music. <laughs> The music is uh, sort of serendipitously um, on theme, uh, a lot of it uh, anyway. So. It all just sort of fell together this yeah, week. Yeah, so we, we have uh, some things to talk about. I kind of want to just start on the um, most classical of it all, uh, so-called classical that instantly came to my mind. Every election um, cycle, um, I think about uh, John Adams's uh, Nixon in China. So uh, maybe you know the history a little bit better than I do, but President Nixon went to China, right? Right. Okay. And, um, and, and it was the, go ahead. it was a big thing. Yep. It was oh my god. So John Adams, the uh, composer, uh, decided to write uh, an opera about it. That was back in 1987, my birth year, Scott. I'm the I'm about the same uh, age as Nixon in China. Hmm. Nixon in China. You can celebrate together. <laughs> um, so from um, that opera. Oh, and I was supposed to. This is why I was thinking about it. So this week, um, if it weren't for COVID, I was supposed to be in Washington D.C. doing um, pre-concert talks on performances of Nixon in China, you know, with the uh, Kennedy Center. But, you know, COVID and all that, you know, everything went to hell. I thought that was going to be pretty provocative and pretty, you know, something to be doing at the week of the election and X, Y, and Z, you know. Wow. Um, but, um, but you know, from that opera, and and I'll, uh, and you can look up links and stuff and clips on YouTube, but from that opera leading up to it, um, it said that John Adams, it's described as his warm-up for writing it, he wrote a little concert orchestra called the Chairman Dance. And it's not like, you know, the, the word dances is a verb in that sentence. And, and I, it seems like we had to have brought this up on Triloquy before uh, in some way. But the, the basic story is um, there's a, a scene where, you know, you have all the dignitaries at a dinner over in um, China. And the chairman hears some music and begins to dance and dance in sexily and all that stuff. And it just turns it into this thing at this dignified dinner party. It's uh, described as a foxtrot for orchestra. My favorite part is the end with uh, all that uh, really cool. And when I use that word cool, both, you know, like cool, but also like temperature cool. I mm -hmm. kind of feel like the iciness of the percussion and the, and, the, um, and the piano. Yeah, um, The Chairman Dances by John Adams.
gonna be real, Scott, and uh, and, and you can back me up. When we were um, in, in the little um, pre-show, as Jonathan said, shout out, I forgot to shout him out for uh, guest hosting last time. Huge shout out to Jonathan. Um, as he says in the pre-show, I was like, wait, is John Adams the one we canceled? Which minimalist composer is that? Steve Reich. <laughs> is, is, is he canceled? Did Steve Reich get canceled? Or is he just is he on the if verge he's of the it? One, if he was the one that was talking bad about uh, African people, then then yeah, he's the one. That's him. Um it's, it's a shame that you Damn. have to ask that question these days. You got to ask that about your teacher too. We were talking about with the violinist last movement. Evidently. Anyway, so um, yeah, check out uh, the Chairman Dances by uh, John Adams. Cool piece. Uh, what you got? Uh, what was what, what? What you got this week? You probably heard in the news. There's water on the moon. I haven't heard that. <laughs> it was yeah. They now there's always been water on the moon, but they thought that it was just in like the part that doesn't get any sun or in the craters, you know, or something like that. But yeah. um, And then I saw uh, a lot of people on Twitter were sharing. We have a poem here. It's called Whitey on the Moon. (laughs) It was inspired by some whiteys on the moon. So first and foremost... Talk about Whitey on the Moon. Is this a is this a song? So I I know the the tune, like mm-hmm. you know. But but is this from your time? I don't know much about the song other than what it sounds like. Early seventies, I think nineteen seventy one is when it was released. I didn't hear it until perhaps the mid nineties when uh, I was into spoken word for a while. Oh, you oh, <laughs> I listened, you had that phase. I, okay. Yeah, you know, I listened to some Lenny Bruce and sure. uh, Abby Hoffman and you know things like that. Speeches. Who's the who, who's the artist behind this whitey on the moon his name is gil scott heron and uh this was a, a response to uh profound debt when that, it was that, written when right, the song came out it was it was uh, about profound debt surrounding medical costs and he's saying all this you know while whitey's on the moon you know i i can just add it to my list of things i talk about how and you know I'm this this thing is called triloquy, okay? So <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. White people have seen Sasquatch, have seen mermaids, have found water on the moon, but can't see systemic racism. Can't understand that. Hmm. Can't understand that part. Can't see how um, your practices are problematic. Can't see how you are upholding white supremacy in whatever you know work you're doing or whatever rule you maintain or we were talking about this child. when we were talking about this when the riots were going on in the summer that people start flipping out why are they why do is people well, intense well, everywhere right but it's water but, on the moon god but, damn it but the, what, what i'm saying is is that this sort of thing has been in literature in art in music you know we're we're talking 40 years back 50 years back for this it's it's been there and and people go well why why are they so angry and and just the parallels like the fact that the song perfectly relates today as much as it perfectly related back in that time, you know, back to the James Baldwin quote, how much of our time do you need? You know, we're talking about 50, 60 years at this point. You know, my grandmother's time is all is is going to be up. 
you right. know, in the next, you know, my parents after that, you know, do you, do I need to be gone for, you know, is that how much time you need? That's why. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this on Triloquy a lot, you know, uh, how things take time, but that's the pushback. What, what the thing, the change that we have not seen, you know, by just waiting on um, this time, you know, talking about Whitey on the moon. I saw um, there was another article about uh, maybe it was a woman at the International uh, Space Station or, or somewhere in space casting her ballot. She did. You from know, the space station. From, yeah. from the space station. She probably didn't have any problem casting that ballot. It's black folks yesterday, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, that did not get their ballot counted. That had, you know, that work didn't let them out until X time. And then by the time they get to the polls and people blah, in blah, North blah, Carolina got maced. Got, got pepper sprayed. It's, it's, so, you, so a white person can be in outer space and vote fine but people here standing on god's green earth on allah's green earth can't even do it anyway mm, whitey on the moon gil scott heron here's a here's a little bit more of that a rat done bit my sister nell with whitey on the moon her face and arms began to swell and whitey's on the moon i can't pay no doctor bills but whitey's on the moon 10 years from now i'll be paying still while whitey's on the moon you know, the man just so on my way over here, Scott, I heard uh, one of the things that I want to talk about a little bit uh, today. I'll I, I let you listen to it earlier. So Common, the rapper Common, came out uh, with an album, uh, I think on Friday, this past Friday, called A Beautiful Revolution Part One. And all of the music on here, I, I was describing it as grown folks, hip hop. and I felt it. Yeah, I think that's a good description. But, it, but it's all, you know, about this moment of time. And if you don't know uh, Common uh, by name, if some reason you don't know who he is <laughs> you probably um would recognize him from the soundtrack uh to the movie selma he did that song called glory with mm -hmm. uh, john legend hands to the heavens no man no weapon formed against yes glory is destined everyday women and men become legends sins that go against our skin become blessed yeah but uh his his new album again is called uh, a beautiful revolution part one and every the, i like every song on it every, everything is phenomenal the one I'm going to um, talk a little bit about here is called Riot in My Mind. And as I was, uh, Dell was driving, so he's, you know, playing DJ. And he said, oh, th uh, there's one here featuring Lenny Kravitz. And I'm like, so let's play it. So I feel like we've, you know, before I get into this song, I feel like we've given Lenny Kravitz his flowers on this podcast before. A couple but, times. Yeah. Um, but so so first and foremost, shout out to him. Uh, if, if it weren't for him, there isn't a lot about, you know, his genre of music that I would know because, mm -hmm. you know, back to the conversation of visibility and seeing people who look like you do certain things x y and z you know so shout out to lenny kravitz for being out here um how long do you think his scarf is going to be this winter <laughs> it, it has to be one that can block the um aerosol so it's gonna probably gonna going to probably go over his whole head yeah <laughs> um so the song is called A Riot In My Mind. It features Lenny Kravitz. Starts out with this really cool and gentle um, guitar solo. It, all, it is reminding me of sort of that calm in the evening, maybe even a calm before the storm. What you think of that um, guitar uh, solo? What, what kind of playing does that sound like to you? It sounds to me like it was at a piano bar or uh, maybe a supper club 
Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, as that continues, it, it goes on and on, and then sort of unexpectedly, I think, in a really interesting way, you know, you get that beat drop. You know, that moment is kind of like, you know, the moment that it just goes down, the moment that, you know, that first window breaks, the mm-hmm. moment that, you know, it's just we we out here. You know, um, I wanted to read uh, some of the lyrics that really um, uh, struck a chord with me um, toward the end here. It's a war outside when it's quiet. It's a riot in my mind. It's a war outside. It won't be quiet. It's a riot in my mind. Toward the end, it says, if you really bout it, we going to see. Oh, yeah, it's a war outside. So, again, talking about the organizations and the institutions who have posted these statements and X, Y and Z and are doing other things. If you really bout it we're gonna see because as people are uh are saying this is gonna be this is gonna be a time you know i kind of hate that uh, common is around here trying to be on the soundtrack to (laughs) the second civil war so he made sure his music came out in time but it's an interesting soundtrack to this time you have to you have to admit well like you said the whole album is how did you call it adult rap or grown folks hip-hop grown folks hip-hop maybe that's why i responded to it but um, it's nice to uh, have that groove that keeps, you know, because we were listening to it in the kitchen yeah, and it kept the cooking going. And at the same time, I wasn't struggling too hard to understand the lyrics. Right, right. Um, there's another song on that album that I uh, really enjoyed. I think it's the second track. It's called Fallen. And one of the lyrics in that song, if I'm remembering right in this moment, is, you know, you say we're free, but we're actually fallen, you know. Mm. And sometimes all of this does feel like a free fall, you know. When we, uh, you know, when I think about money, I think about, you know, getting lower and lower and lower (laughs) until you hit, you know, just trying to stay from that rock bottom where the alligators or whatever are, you know, and however you want to use that metaphor, the alligators are filing for bankruptcy. I don't know. But Mm. um, but so, so all of that to say, go check out um, Common's album, A Beautiful Revolution, part one. I hope we make it to part two. I hope we, I was about to say, I hope part two comes out. Yeah. You had some, uh, some timely uh, music as well, huh? Uh, shout out Other to, than the, you know, Whitey on the Moon. Right. Shout out to my buddy John Fleischer, who years and years ago forwarded on to me a, um, I, the, the one that I really like I found on YouTube. There are versions of it on other streaming services, and you can buy the sheet music and everything, by Frederick Rzewski, uh, a piece called Coming Together. I think the combination of age and a greater coming together is responsible for the speed of the passing time. That was written in response to, uh, I I believe it was the Attica prison riots. Mm -hmm. So we're talking again in another early 70s minimalist piece. And uh, Frederick, I believe, is the pianist on the one that I like. and the, everybody in the band just goes through some rounds. They get a chance to step out and um, 
play their own thing uh, in the spotlight for a little bit. But it it builds in this frustrating way that uh, you can't help but feel the tension that perhaps these prisoners were feeling uh, mm-hmm. during these riots. And um, uh, the way that um, the lyrics get repeated over and over, and he gives a different read on it each time. Sometimes there's more urgency. Sometimes there's some hopefulness. And uh, I'm going. And, and the lyrics come from a letter that was written um, from the from the jail, right? That's right. Based on just a portion of a letter that was written by Attica State Prison inmate Sam Melville. Uh, he was killed in that pr- that prison riot that we were talking about in 1971. Um, so just portion of his letter repeated over and over, and and you can just feel that tension and frustration build. It, it's a it's a longer piece. It's almost 20 minutes. Yeah. Even though you know it's something uh, the frustration and the and the and the tenseness in that piece of music that if you're just kind of listening to it in the background sounds pretty smooth and 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 easy listening you know especially with the way the lyrics can be performed it does and yeah check it out check it out on spotify because there's three or four different recordings of it that will give you a different take on it um I, I don't know if there are any sort of markings on the narration to indicate when they should read in a certain way perhaps it's left open you know like when a soloist finishes a cadenza or something yeah, you know maybe yeah. maybe they're given some license there it's it said it was written for an open orchestra that's so. what i was going to say open orchestration so just open interpretation as well of the of the libretto I li- if you want to use that word i like that idea yeah so am i dealing with my environment in the indifferent brutality the incessant noise the experimental chemistry of food Ravings of lost hysterical men. I can't act. So I'm actually um, going to transition uh, into my conversation with Sidney Hobson with some Wagner, believe it or not. But before we get to that German tune, there's one other <laughs> bit of German music that I wanted you to bring up. So we have you happen to be just flipping through some music last night, and you put me on to a band called Rammstein, right? I like the way you put that emphasis on. So, so first of all, tell tell the people what Rammstein is, or maybe I'm the one in the dark who uh, who never had heard of this band. It's a German anything. metal band. Yeah, you know, yeah. and they've you know they've been known to do some pretty outlandish antics in their stage shows. I would definitely look up Du Hast live. It's an experience. And believe it or not, it, it wasn't until we were listening to it that I saw the video. I, I had only heard it on album before, uh, Living in America. Yeah, they the, have a song called Living in America. And, you know, I, I was uh, not paying a lot of attention <laughs> to a lot of things that night, and I didn't see a lot of the key points of the video until we looked at it again before we recorded. Mm-hmm. So it's it's satire. It's a, I, I would say it's a biting commentary on living in America, but also America's influence, good or bad, around the world. Yeah. You see 
African tribes people eating pizza and um, monks of some sort in Asia with whoppers. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Coca-Cola right. Wunderbar. And that's even some of the lyrics, Coca-Cola sometimes war. Right. You know, Coca-Cola Wunderbar, something, something, sometimes war. So thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do remember watching it with you guys last night that, and, and not really getting, I wasn't paying a close enough attention to all these little product placements that were happening, happening throughout the video. Mm-hmm. Well, um, a part of me wants to say, and again, with everything being the way it is this week, a part of me feels guilty making a little joke, but okay, so... Acknowledge that first. A part of me feels like Germany ain't got no room to talk about us, especially these days. I did maybe if I can remember to bring it up next week, I will. I, I don't want to go too long today. I found an article I was telling you earlier about how the there uh, this student organization, I think down in Kentucky as well. Shout out to Kentucky, Louisville ain't taking it these days. Right, um, a student organization that found. Um, a police training video slideshow that had Hitler quotes in it to basically desensitize these people. And I'll, I'll let you see to desensitize these people know, and to yeah. think of violence as this necessary thing. So Germany is, is interesting that, you know, this very heavy metal music from a country like Germany with its um, history, you know, and it paid its reparations. Like, you know, we kind of uh, talked about a couple opuses ago. So, um, but, you know, for them to, you know, see what America is doing and what America is becoming. Maybe, maybe with considering their history, they have more of a license to critique us and to recognize how quickly things can go south. Get ready for it. I, I'm, I'm bothered by this white and black and blue flag. I guess this is the Blue Lives Matter flag. The it's, blue line. Yeah, yeah, it seems like that's becoming the new rebel flag. I said it is becoming the new symbol of. I need to go the other way, as far as I'm concerned. I know that you didn't read comic books growing up, but there is one called The Punisher in which he has a very distinct skull that takes up most of his torso. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing that on a lot of uh, Second Amendment sort of cars, you know, with those stickers. Right. Uh, It's a vigilante sign. Well, you know, as Rammstein said, we're, we're living in America. I mentioned that I was going to put some Wagner to transition into my um, conversation with Sidney Hobson. So let me uh, put this into a little context. So um, we were at USC together. We were the only two um, black students there, the only, you know, uh, that as far as I knew anyway, um, as far as the music school. So. Um, my second year of grad school, he had the opportunity to play this really cool percussion concerto um, that was supposed to be a continuation of the ring cycle. Huh. So at the end of the ring cycle, there's this beautiful chorale, and I and I talked about it not too long ago. Uh, that's playing while the world is being destroyed. You know, I talk about give me a reason to shout this out. Well, in that concerto that he plays, the composer begins with that. So. You have this beautiful chorale that's playing um, that 
as far as the ring cycle is concerned, is the end. For this percussion concerto, it's the beginning and goes into what happens next or what could have happened next if Albrecht lived or, you know, mm. and, and, and all that uh, sort of thing. So um, that was my exposure to that bit of music. And it's really what I think about most uh, when I think about Sidney. So uh, you're going to learn about the very unique work he does in classical music when it comes to um, uh, uh, collaborating with corporations and even some politicians when it comes to helping them fund initiatives that are going to benefit us. He frames it in a way to show that it also benefits them. So I think it's a really um, interesting conversation. I thought it was a good uh, conversation to have this week with the election and, you know, every, everybody's Timely. thinking about government. But um, yeah, but so as a, as a long way of saying to transition <laughs> into my conversation with Sydney, you know, this is a reason for me to share Wagner, you know, and when we talk about the destruction that might be happening today as as this airs on Wednesday, even more reason to depict the or to share this piece of music depicting the end of the world. So here it is, and here's Sidney Hobson. I'm in West Hollywood. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm just off of Melrose here. Um, we had a, a pretty big and pretty unexpected uh, BLM protest right around the corner for me last night. And everyone was in full costume. So it was actually kind of hard to tell <laughs> what was happening at first. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was just like this big old Pikachu running down, <laughs> down the street with a bullhorn. Pikachu um, was down for the cause. He was. You know, he was dropping some truth, too. I was, just, <laughs> I was listening to him. like, all right, I see you. I choose you. I see you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty eventful here last night. But, uh, but you know, nothing nothing too crazy. So. Yeah. About, oh, about maybe a year ago, that Southern California bug started to bite me a little yeah. bit more. I was uh, watching and catching up on the show uh, Insecure, if you know that. Issa oh, yeah, Rae. absolutely. Oh, and, you know, so seeing all of these, like she, um, there's a restaurant that I used to go to all the time. Um at uh, the corner of Slauson and like, I don't know, La Brea or something like that. Um, this like a Caribbean owned, I think it's called Simply Wholesome. Is the yeah, name absolutely. That. I pass it all the time. Yeah, and um, used to. They, they shot a scene in that restaurant, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I miss Southern California. I loved my neighborhood, and but, you know, life life takes you places, doesn't it? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, one of my, I mean, I love that show, but one of my favorite things is the great lanes that they go to feature a lot of the local businesses. Yeah. Like you got Simply Wholesome and Pans and, you know, so, yeah, I really appreciate uh, the way they do the neighborhood, so. And, and, I, and I guess that kind of throws us right in. You know, we talk about uh, someone with a platform, Issa Rae, uh, you know, taking the opportunity, you know, her obligation, I'm sure she feels to feature these, you know, local businesses and do what she can. And it, it seems like that's sort of in a way uh, what you do when it comes to arts organizations and, and other folks with uh, big money. Trying. It's a it's a process. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What, what's the what, you, you know when you say trying what yeah. what what, what uh, elicits that uh, response what, what what's the what's the resistance there? It, it's not so much resistance. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that as clearly as I can, but I'm gonna take a little bit of the scenic route to, yeah. to get there. So, um, my goal as a consultant um, is very much just shaped by my worldview. 
And my worldview is such that as an artist, I feel like the institutional narratives that drive um, arts organizations, big and small, is still very landlocked to two generations ago. Hmm. And so the question of what can an arts organization do for its community or for the larger just country or world at large is still being shaped through very sort of industrial metrics as opposed to a willingness to really blow our sort of metrics and, you know, wide open. So, so yeah. for example, what I mean by that is... I, through my own work, have been committed to the idea of building programs that could, um, by every measure, achieve larger sort of social and political goals. Now, to be specific, some of those programs were designed to uh, bolster crime prevention and lower crime rates in certain areas. Some of them were designed as uh, counter-terrorism, international development programs. Some of those were uh, climate protection programs. But the Mm -hmm. idea was that um, if a large scale or small scale arts organization wanted to commit to a cause, you know, not necessarily lesser or greater, but just more, you know, broader, I should say, than just curating cultural content that they can. But it requires looking at the very nature of the content you're producing and reconciling that with the ecosystem around you. So for example, Uh, One of the questions that comes up all the time, uh, both with clients and just in general conversation is, you know, how do we, you know, we have X amount of donors, a lot of our big donors are dying off, you know, how do we just build the money to do these things? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, if you are a slave to old money, you're generally also slave to old ideas and sensitivities, right? Because Mm. people usually give for the purposes of seeing their worldview and their ideologies mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, amplified through their gifts, right? So when you look at what like a lot of the big tech companies are doing right now, if you look at the, the, the economy that we exist within, you're looking at companies like Google and all kinds of big and small tech startups that are building products whose sole purpose is to ultimately kind of modify your behavior in such a way that it guides you towards profitable outcomes, right? So you're in a space where ultimately companies, you know, are, you know, big companies are investing in small companies that help them achieve that goal. So I ask myself constantly, what role does an orchestra, does an opera company, does a ballet company play in shaping those futures, hmm. right? Because, you know, narratives that we push in arts organizations are no different than national narratives, right? For every time we tell somebody that art is objectively good, and anytime you go to a concert, it's a good thing, and you are made more whole as a person, it already puts a veil over their eyes towards any negative aspects of that process, whether mm-hmm. it's how the program is financed, whether it's internal biases of the institution. There's all kinds of other right. you know, issues. The, the demographics of the folks on stage, on exactly. staff. Exactly. Yep. All of it, right? So there's this whole web of issues, right? But the narrative we use is designed to achieve a specific outcome. So what happens when arts organizations no longer try to sort of balance themselves between, you know, being curators of a particular time or culture or identity and actually commit to the role and the responsibility of guiding future outcomes? 
what does that look like? What does the programming look like? What do the partnerships then look like? Because all of a sudden, the very model that we have depended on for a very long time, the development model, starts to pretty much immediately break down. Because the types of money that we're then cultivating and the types of partnerships that we're cultivating often are not sufficient to reach those outcomes. So in terms of what I try to do in my work and what, um, you know, I, in my efforts to sort of advance, you know, the my sort of little nook of, of the arts industry, um, a big part of my work is one, painting that bigger picture and being able to speak to both uh, administrators and performers alike, soloists and ensemble players and say, look, before we talk about how to, you know, save your organization or how to help it thrive, we have to define those words. Because too often success is simply like, how much are we able to pay people to do the thing that we've right. been doing for the right. last 50 to 100 years, as opposed to how can we use the cultural capital that's been developed to actually advance the very nature of the institution? Mm -hmm. Because there's no, there's no real justifiable reason at this point that if our largest arts organizations wanted to, to sort of take the reins of sort of driving themselves as a, as a player in a futures market, they could. You have all the resources, you have all the capital, right? But you have to fundamentally reassess your narrative, your content, and all of the inner workings of the institution in order to do that. Yeah. But it's, it's just a different conversation altogether. You know, as I, as I, there's so much there, and as yeah. as I listen to you talk, I think about the ways in which these, um, you know, these corners of, of the industry that you know aren't always to the front. You know, of the work you do and the work others do, how it's all born from you know the orchestral stage or from the the conservatory, from the practice room. You know, it's not like we're bred to do this sort of work, but we're sort of led to it. Um, in, in some way, uh, what was that uh, thing or those things for you? I, I remember the phenomenal percussionist. I don't remember the uh, the, the 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 consultation soldier in the house. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I, I do. I do. Uh, and you know, to be honest, it started as a fluke. And I'll, I'll tell anybody this any any day. Um, one of my dearest friends in the world um, found herself in a situation where she needed a visa. Um, had had to leave the country very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of ironically, I actually misunderstood a bit of the, the details. And I was, I was 19 at the time. I didn't know a thing about anything. Are you about to, to tell me you got married to someone? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. Yeah. Um, so so at, at about 19 and just ignorant enough to not be as daunted and frightened by the process as i should have been mm -hmm. um i made a promise that i did not have the capacity to keep which was hey i don't know how but we're going to figure out how to get you a visa but we'll get you an artist visa i had yep. no idea what i was talking about but i was like you know what we're just gonna we're just gonna take big swings we're gonna go for it you know and I immediately, after hanging up that phone call, realized I don't have a clue what I just said. Like, I don't, I don't know where this is going. Like, what did I just sign myself up for, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I had just finished my bachelor's at the time. I, I had planned a, a winter to go study in London for a bit. So uh, while I was in London, I basically do all my practicing and lessons in the daytime and at night. I'm scrambling the internet for any information I can yeah. about, like, how to help, again, you know, uh, restore my friend's visa. And again, just being young enough and naive enough at the time, I decide 
without consulting anybody that it would just probably be more efficient if I just booked a flight to DC and like went to like immigration services and just talked to somebody because that was the logic that I had available to me at the sure. time. So I booked a flight and went to Washington and just started like cold calling people uh, at immigration services and the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, just trying to get any info I could. And the, the lesson I learned very quickly in this sort of goose chase that I threw myself into was nobody was really going out of the way to try to help. And the main reason, especially at the time in 2000, you know, early 2009 was mm -hmm. there's there at the time and even still has never quite been a household understanding of the social, political and economic potential of artists. Right. And there, there's so much mystery and so much misinformation and so much confusion shrouding that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes for good reason, because obviously not every artist thinks the same or wants the same or does the same. So, you know, it, it, it would be reckless to presume we all are out to achieve the same ends. And that's fine. They don't have to be. Um, but because nobody really had numbers or receipts, you know, to back up what it was that those within our industry, even the sort of broader arts industry, were achieving politically and economically, there, there wasn't much in terms of pre-existing information to guide someone to say, okay, we better help this artist, right? If you say, hey, we've got a great, you know, neurologist who we need to get back here. We've got a great, you know, coder that we need here mm -hmm. in America. Like, okay, people at least have a general industrial understanding to say, okay, well, we need a doctor. We need you know, our tech people, we need these engineers, you know. But that level of just sort of, you know, implied credibility didn't exist, you know. And so that led me to do the next thing, which I was wholly unqualified to do at the time, which was to say, I went home that night, and I was like, you know, I'm not going to bed until I can answer the question, of, you know, what, what impact do artists make on, you know, all these areas, you know, military, healthcare, yeah. Climate change. I basically, I went to the White House website and just pulled down the issues tab. <laughs> and right. I just like copied and pasted because sure. I didn't know where to start. And I was like, I'm not going to bed till I could answer the question. About an hour into it, I was like, oh man, I got to go to bed. This is a long-term project. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that was how this started. Was literally just thinking, look, nobody's going to hear me out until I can come with the proof and with any reason that anyone might take me seriously. And one thing, you know, leads to another. And in the process of trying to identify ways that I thought arts organizations can make a difference, I started noticing all the holes in the actual arts infrastructure. And I started seeing ways that like policy at the, at the National Endowment for the Arts was not set up to achieve those goals. And likewise, most major institutions didn't operate programs that would achieve those goals. So the next couple of years for me began this period of like small scale sort of consulting and, and trying to push smaller arts organizations to build new programs that I could then a year later deliver proof and transcripts and, and narratives uh, to legislators and saying, look, using XYZ organization as an example, as my case study, here is all the proof you should need to see why if we execute XYZ types of programs, we will achieve XYZ benefits economically, socially, uh, and politically. So I had to sort of build the infrastructure that I would then essentially um, grow my career in consulting sort of business off of. And all along the way, I'm just learning more about the political infrastructure and domestic policy, foreign policy, and, and all of it just continued to snowball over those next couple of years. But, but there are, you know, 
there are um, examples of artists and even specific songs that have had that big cultural um, impact. You know, I'm thinking of N.W.A. right now and Absolutely. how topical that that still is. Do you feel like it's a different story to um, work within those channels uh, that are off the streets, so to speak? You know, when you're talking about, you know, these corporations, you know, uh, folks in politics, is it a different game? Because we know how music and musicians can impact the people. Um, maybe not so much the the, the structures. Uh, yes, and for two primary reasons, uh, it's it's different. One, the government, you know, federal and state, primarily, you know, both. I would say primarily um, aren't even really remotely set up to uh, engage or support cultural expeditions outside of the nonprofit sector. So NWA, you know, the way I like to explain this is, you know. Um, Yo-Yo Ma can play a concert with the L.A. Phil mm-hmm. or New York Phil or any, any orchestra. And there are organizations like Americans for the Arts, National Endowment, who will follow every dollar generated by that concert. They'll tell you ticket sales. They'll tell you how many people bought a glass of wine that night. And they will put together an annual report uh, in the case of Americans for the Arts. It's called the Arts and Economic Prosperity Study that follows every dollar generated by that concert. So they can go to members of Congress and say, you know, our industries are generating, you know, X amount of billions of dollars in economic stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, you to play the exact same concert, and instead of at Disney Hall, maybe at the Staples Center with a for-profit group, just by any you know corporate production company, and those dollars aren't necessarily tracked, right? Because we don't really follow the for-profit sector to the same level of detail. So one of the main issues is just the infrastructure. So before, you know, issues of sort of culture and identity and norms even come into the picture, we just have a framework that's not really suited for the scope of our productions and arts institutions. So that's that's one big thing. Um, and, and it varies across each state, but it's generally true in all 50. Right. So the second is when you start getting into the issue of bias. Right. Sure. So I, I've served as a grant panelist now for a couple different, you know, programs at the state and the county level. And, and one trend, uh, it's a sad trend that I continue to see, is that organizations that, let me, uh, let me put this as delicately as I can. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, organizations uh, that, especially educational organizations that promote, teach, you know, traditionally black arts, we're talking, you know, hip hop, dance, you know, uh, just lyrics, you know, rap, lyric writing, you name it, um, tend to never qualify for even the mid-range grants, right? And so, and partially it's because the big grants are designed for organizations with big budgets. But as we all know, who has the biggest budgets, you know, in our field? It's it's still the biggest orchestras and opera companies, right? Mm-hmm. So by default, for budgetary reasons, the big organizations have access to the most money, right? So one of the other reasons that you don't hear about, you know, inner city programs walking away with $1 million, you know, public grants or half a million dollar public grants is because their annual operating budget is too small to qualify. But there is next to no effort being made to increase their budgets so that they might qualify. Yep. Um, meanwhile, what I've also witnessed is um, in California on multiple occasions, large organizations effectively lobby to create new budgetary categories for their larger budgets that ultimately removes competition. So by saying, 
you know, if we have four categories, we're those with zero to a hundred thousand dollar budget, hundred to one fifty, one fifty to five hundred thousand, and then five hundred thousand up. But there's only two organizations in the city with that budget. Yeah, you know, you don't have competition, and so I've you know the decks tend to get stacked in that way. And again, that never favors any group that I have seen so far that has been predominantly of color. Of, well, any other color. So, you know, I can get excited about, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, being a slave to old money. I, I can get excited potentially about new money and younger money, you know, uh, being being in the picture, you know, an organization um, under the umbrella of, you know, Hove and Beyonce and the billion dollars they have or whatever. I, I, I get that. But how do, does this conversation, how does this work, um, you know, parlay in the growing critique of capitalism? You know, because for many people, that's how we got here in the first place. I mean, as, as it's specific, you know, to musicians, folks like us, we can talk about, you know, student loan debt that we needed to cultivate to go to these schools to get these jobs. And, you know, of course, that conversation can be expanded to, to anyone. But, yeah, I wonder with the growing critique of capitalism, you know, maybe new money wouldn't even uh, be good enough for certain folks in, uh, you know, trying to see a big shift in the arts. Yeah, I oh, know. It's, it's a good question. Um, you know, and this is one of those those topics where um, we, we have to find new ways to walk and chew bubblegum. Right. Because okay. <laughs> it's it's the sum of all parts that that, that allows it to work. Right. Because mm -hmm. as we all know, Big money in general, new or old, unchecked, <laughs> tends to run rampant and it tends to not necessarily find its way back down to the workers, right? So I, I'm under no remote pretense or, or illusion that simply saying, hey, let's turn our focus to Google and just sort of shape our plan in whatever way Google says it needs to give us, you know, huge cash influx that that'll do well because, yeah. you know, well, that would just be a bad idea, you know? <laughs> but I, I think in terms of, you know, meeting in the middle and splitting the difference and finding a way to develop not just new avenues for funding, um, but new precedents for funding. For, uh, for, for funding. Um, I believe it falls twofold. It does have to come with, with regulation, it has to come with expectations, and those expectations need to be governed by communities themselves. And let me, let me give an example of what I mean by that. So um, something I say often is, and, and this isn't necessarily a profound thought, but it's something that I, I like to anchor myself in, is, you know, there's a fundamental difference between empowering a community, an underserved or a minority community through the arts, and simply equipping them to assimilate dominant cultural norms, That's right? True. And we often conflate those two, or big institutions often conflate those two, right? It's, it's the logic that says, you know, give black and brown folks you know, instruments, tell them to play Mozart all day and we will have improved their life, right? It's this idea that just by abstract that this process alone is enough to elevate you. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it's, a, it's a reckless presumption for a number of reasons, but without going too deep into that for now, I'll say, um, the idea is that, look, obviously creativity and the process of being creative in and expressing oneself is healthy, but we can't turn a blind eye to the house, right? So if we're going to be cultivating relations with larger corporations like Google on the basis of saying, look, you know, we will shape our activities and our behaviors and our protocols and our internals on this, this notion that we are now a, an active player 
in shaping the futures market and ultimately embracing our ability to yield and sort of wield capitalism. Um, in return, here's what we need to see on behalf of the communities, the diverse populations we represent. Here are the protections we need to see for our workers. Here are the scholarships we need to see made available for our students. We need to see big tech sending, you know, BIPOC students to school, to conservatory, from bachelor's to doctorate. Here are the ways that we need to actually totally integrate ourselves into each other. So it's not just us kowtowing to get more money from big corporations. It's actually saying, look, we're going to meet in the middle. If, if you're going to be this large, you know, you know, sort of beast of a capital organization, here are the ways that we can inject humanity into your mainframe, and here are the ways that you can support the communities that need it the most, but not just as an act of charity, like actual investment in the thriving and the uplifting of communities who have just been denied that access to capital for a certain number of years here. So that's that's what I'm talking about, is, is ultimately redefining the relationship between funder and institution while opening up new pipelines of funding all together, all at the same time. Right. So, um, and, and you've mentioned Google a few times, so yeah. I'll, I'll use them as, as an example. So, you know, Google sets up in their infra infrastructure funding to make sure that, you know, black kids uh, go to conservatory, you know, get these degrees so that, that they're prepared to be competitive uh, mm -hmm. in, in these markets, in these fields. Where does, uh, is that where uh, your work stops? How, how does the work address um, you know, the field itself, you know, the fact that there are, you know, very few orchestras right now actually doing any, any work, you know, are, are we are we preparing these people, you know, to go into a, a, a landscape where they can't, you know, uh, utilize what they've what, what they've learned and what they've acquired over the years? I think currently, yes. Um, currently, and, and for some years now, that's been the primary issue is that we have built up a workforce without a market, mm -hmm. you know, when you really look at the numbers, right? And, you know, there's all, all kinds of things we could say about the sort of lack of responsibility and oversight of the educational level. You know, there's obviously many layers to that and, and many of which you've talked about, you know. Um, in terms of this new sort of reassessment of the relationship with capital, Part of the goal is to seal that gap, right? Because if, 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 again, using Google as an example, if they're looking at orchestras as sort of capital drivers, you can bet we're going to start seeing more orchestras pop up, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, they are now strategic sort of linchpins in shaping behaviors, right? And if those behaviors are simply, right, in the same way, you know, just to, again, provide a little clarity, if, you know, let's talk about what some of those behaviors are, right? Right now, you know, is what many like, uh, you know, writers and thinkers like Shoshana Zuboff uh, at the Harvard Business School, you know, her phenomenal book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, if anyone hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, someone like a Zuboff might, might look at this example and say, look, um, these institutions, right, can shape outcomes. So those outcomes, to define what some of them may be, could be everything from um, narratives designed to do everything from promoting cultural you know, integration to equality to the kinds of narratives that we're seeing really played out you know, in a surreal level right now in our political 
uh, in, in sort of the political realm, you know, the, the sort of Joe Biden campaign's attempt at contrasting from, you know, the Trump campaign, right. this idea that we're not just stronger together, but we have to we have to talk detail. We've got to bring receipts. We've got to talk about what together means. We've got to talk about the very specific policies that have, you know, sort of barred us from actually truly being stronger together. We have to actually deal with, we have to dare to be specific, right? And so if I you know, as a, a, as a leader of a big tech company, see an orchestra or an opera company or a chamber ensemble as a tool for shaping the kinds of behavioral outcomes that will lead to increased economic strength and security, whether it be in a poor community or an, even an affluent community. But mm-hmm. I see that not only I can, I can, you know, increase economic outcomes, but also have the foresight to see how those economic outcomes will then, in the capitalist mindset, come back in the form of extra wealth and capital for myself, then for me individually, I'm not here to necessarily judge the big tech exec who sees, you know, profit as a result of lifting up a community in an ethical manner. I'm not going to judge that person necessarily, because I think at this point, if somebody makes some money as a result of actually truly elevating and lifting the community up and actually investing the kind of wealth and capital and resources that lead to greater economic equality and lead to greater equity and diminished wealth inequality, then that's the kind of relationship I can support. And so, but to do that, again, you have to be able to take a very strategic sort of bird's eye view, you know, look at, you know, every institution on a regional basis and say, look, you know, what capacity does this institution have to institute and initiate these outcomes, then how can we strategically inject capital to achieve those outcomes so that they achieve their social goal, and our company goes keeps you know moving along on the direction it wants to move. Either way, yes, the the, the hard truth is that you know somebody at some point when the buck stops is looking at bottom line figures, and somebody's looking at how much money is my company going to make as a result of this. The thing is, we're already in that realm now, and we have been right, and that's one of the reasons people haven't been investing. So I, I don't anticipate that this process, while trying to sort of invest in better angels, will actually remove or sort of distort or diminish or somehow mitigate, you know, just basic level greed. I don't think that's going away, unfortunately. But I do think it's a pragmatic way to split the difference and a way to uh, achieve greater investment in people who have been denied it or just cut off from it for as long as they've ever known. Um, and to do so in a way that is sustainable and repeatable. But is it unfair still to sort of consider maybe even a long, long, long-term reality where, you know, these financial structures aren't what we need, you know, because for, you know, the radical revolutionary in me, when you when you talk about, you know, even if the, you know, executive is uh, looking at the bottom line and he sees success in, you know, um, raising the money while, you know, your side sees success in the value that is created in the community, you know, the radical revolution in me a revolutionary me says well that executive does not need to exist and we need someone in that position that is really going to center the people and the uh and the well-being of these underserved communities i mean is it unfair to to try to imagine and work toward that reality no not at all um and and to, and to be honest i think this is maybe a step along the way there um i agree with you in that i i do think that I mean, if, if, if we all woke up tomorrow and that was the reality, I, I, I'd be the first one in church on a Monday. You know, like that would be, that'd be fantastic, you know. 
Um, in, in looking at this in terms of sort of incremental progress, not because it's what I think is best, but I think it's just what's realistic. Um, currently, currently, um, I'd love to be wrong, but currently I think uh, in looking at what we have and how to navigate that, um, I think first and foremost, there are institutions that on a basic level are struggling just to survive, even yeah. before the pandemic, right? <clears throat> now, when you pick, you take all that into account, um, when I think about what life could be like a year out, like, you know, even in a, in a best case scenario, let's say there is some highly effective vaccine for whatever reason, you know, we've gotten to a point where we, we trust it and people take it and, and we're good and things are back to some form of normal, mm-hmm. right? Things were still really bad before this period, right? And things were very precarious um, for even the big institutions and especially for the mid-level and folks of color were still either not being accepted at the same rates, hired at the same rates, paid at the same rates. And now there is a global sort of, to be just blunt, we, there's been this global excuse injected into the narrative that like now, since we're recovering from the pandemic, things are going to take time. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and to an extent, sure, I get it. But knowing the environment we were in before March, um, I have little faith in the idea that the organization's best equipped to push sort of cultural progress or progress towards equity and diversity. I just, I haven't seen enough to be convinced that that is going to continue at the speed it needs to a year from now. So my focus, my sort of sort of strategic view of this is to say, look, I don't want to be dependent on the same institutions that, to be frank, I felt very let down by for a pretty extensive period of time. And so while I would love to be wrong about that, and I'd love to see, you know, tremendous change start from the inside out and, you know, institutions lead, you know, their own internal sort of reforms and and push greater equity, push all the kind of policies and procedures, you know, we've either talked about or alluded to. Um, I would rather not depend on luck to the extent that I feel like I would have to um, otherwise. So the type of this whole conversation about reassessing sort of relationship with the corporate and with capital is as much um, what I believe to be a step forward as it is a sort of security apparatus for ensuring that the financial sort of fallout from the last eight months, nine months, and sure enough, in the months ahead, still mm-hmm. as we're getting through this pandemic, don't continue to validate inaction. Because at this point, in terms of making progress towards a sort of futures market focus, that's something we can be doing now, right? right. Now, obviously not to full scale, as long as we're not doing live concerts and actually engaging you know, via, via content, but it, these are steps that can be taken now. And I don't want whether it's any of the organizations that I'm directly consulting or just anyone that I have the ability to put a friendly fire beneath, I don't want anyone getting so comfortable that we think, well, the way through this is to just kind of keep doing what we're doing and hoping for the best. Like, that's just not adequate. It wasn't adequate before, and it's even more inadequate now. So 
so that that's my take on this. It's just as, as long as you acknowledge that we need the fire and we need the fire starters in the, in yeah. that regard. <laughs> All day, every day. That's what makes every me day. feel good, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but before we um, uh, wrap up here, I wonder if you could just t- uh, take a couple minutes to touch on uh, your relationship in this work with politics. So we talk mm-hmm. about the corporate structures. I'm sure there um, are uh, you know implications of impacting. Uh, politicians who can impact policies that impact these corporate structures. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I um, my take is, uh, you know, whether it's Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or the Easter Bunny, there's always work to get done, no matter who's in the in the, in the Oval. You know, um, I have worked with staunch progressives and staunch Tea Party Republicans uh, to push policy through. Um, you know, and I'll continue to do that. You know. Um, because generally speaking, there are, you know, there's a lot, a lot of rats to get to the same end, right? And there are many conservative Republicans who, um, who I've worked with who have become very, very strong allies for arts policy because for them, um, you know, arts funding is something that, or especially arts education funding is something that due to how sort of American research on the topic has been sort of shaped and collated, um, most people in Capitol Hill that I've worked with associate arts education funding to graduation rates and naturally graduation rates to crime rates. So if people see that arts ed helps kids graduate and graduating keeps them out of jail and incarceration is still more expensive than education, ergo, it's a better investment to get kids you know, involved in arts ed. Yep, yep. Um, and which is a, a simple, is it, is it you know, an oversimplification? Absolutely, but it still works and it's still true. And so I've had plenty of folks, you know, on the far right side of the aisle say, well, look, like, let's do this. And in the same way that there are many conservative Republicans, you know, Newt Gingrich included, who have done tremendous work on criminal justice reform, right? So we may disagree on 98% of every other policy, mm-hmm. but there are, there's always some bridge, right? And so I consider it my work to always find those connecting points and to build functional policy on the places that I see we already align. And some people make that hard. I'm not going to lie. Like sometimes <laughs> it is difficult, you know, but, you know, that's that's the work, you know. And so um, the day I woke up and realized, like, okay, this, this work is not just sort of presenting a case and, you know, trying to convince people to come to you. It's, it's actually you meeting people where they are. Yeah. Because the reality is, you know, you know, no matter how, you know, obviously, you know, in the U.S., we've had a lot of progressive artists and some brilliant artists out there doing incredible work. And and, and nothing I say is in any way intended to diminish, you know, the work, of, you know, the great work people are doing. Um, but the challenge is so often our most progressive sort of ground shaking work has still happened outside of the political apparatus. It may have started a political conversation, mm-hmm. but in terms of converting you know, impulses and ideas into prose and legislation, there's often a disconnect. You know? And so a big part of this work for me is approaching legislators who know language and prose and know sort of details and receipts and being able to present very human sort of dialogue and human outcomes in very quantifiable ways, yep. you know, and to be able to present them with cost-benefit analysis and be able to prevent them, you know, through a geostrategic lens and, and talk about how 
you know, how maybe launching a record label out of a refugee camp can shape foreign policy, mm. you know, in an area that Putin has been playing, you know, geopolitical chicken out of in Syria. You know, I mean, those are right. the kinds of like detail oriented sort of relationships that, that I have with with uh, especially the federal government, but state legislators as well. And so, then, of course, and yeah. then, of course, for folks like us, you know, we're looking at, you know, the positive impact is having on the people in those camps, you know, and not. Absolutely. So, yeah, it, it, it seems like what um, I circle around uh, in my mind is, you know, the um, the spirit behind the work, you know, what yeah. really are, are, are people, what, what people are really believing in as they do the work, despite um, the outcomes. It, it's definitely something that I'll have to wrestle with uh, in my mind for yeah. <laughs> a little longer. You know, I, uh, I always tell people, um, you know, I read constantly. Um, I always got like a few books falling out of bags somewhere, sure. you know. And I, I, I make a point every week to at least be reading one book by somebody who I, I presume to fundamentally disagree with. Mm-hmm. And it forces me to not only engage ideas that I may disagree with, but to try to find the, the, the holes and to find the entry points into sort of better outcomes. And two people who are objectively brilliant people, who I have, I generally disagree with on a great many, many things, who I actually owe a lot of my political successes to as a result of just learning how to navigate through sort of their um, thought processes. Um, Because I found many uh, legislators and policy consultants and advisors aligned with their approach was, Henry Kissinger and, um, I mean, primarily Henry Kissinger, I learned a lot about shaping my foreign policy arguments uh, against his policy briefs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to say that I agree with him. It's to say that um, it's important to learn how to be pragmatic and even dispassionate sometimes. And to say, you know, just what is the most strategic, clear, dependable you know, fortified route to this outcome. What is that? How do you account for, you know, error across, you know, time, space, and scope, you know, and to just do it. And and to know sometimes that to, to accomplish that end, you have to kind of let go of the sort of ethos and let go of the emotional argument and just look at, okay, what needs to be done? Like what economic players need to be shifted? What you know, internal policies need to be changed, what grants need to be applied for, what grants need to be avoided at all costs, mm-hmm. you know, like whose money should we never accept, you know, and to be able to look through that sort of, you know, that lens of just highly, highly detailed, highly analytical thinking, um, to be able to do that is going to be essential. And so for me, you know, we, we can't keep conflating arts management with arts leadership. Like you have to actually apply a far more critical eye and ear to the content you develop and the processes you develop to sort of employ all of that. And then then maybe we'll have a better shot, you know, wow. but it's, it's about relinquishing that sort of old just that old idea that says as long as we just do this and we pay people enough to keep doing this that we're going to be great, you know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like paycheck's great. We need that. Like keep fighting that fight. Like, you know, that's important, but there's this bigger picture that I think is going to be critical to, it's going to soon, I think it's going to be critical to the survival of both small and large organizations. But, you know, I don't think we're going to get through the next decade without, you know, having 
fully ex- embrace the new sort of economic precedent. Um, I just don't see us having that kind of time to wait anymore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, you, you've given me uh, so much and I'm sorry that we didn't do too much talking about, um, uh, percussion and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, but just, uh, as, as an outro here, what's a, uh, for folks who don't really know, um, percussion as, um, an art, you know, as a, as a solo sort of set of instruments, what, what would be, uh, one of the first concertos you'd point people toward as far as really getting the flavor of what a uh, percussionist can really do? <laughs> There's so many. Oh, okay. I probably, Probably one of them is Joseph Schwantner. Uh, I haven't seen it played for a minute now, but it's a good intro into minimalism, big, loud percussion sections, big orchestra percussion section, big cadenzas. Um, And one kind of, I got a soft spot for it. Well, and and Schwantner also wrote a piece of music in honor of the late uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I guess I'll I'll let him on this platform. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sydney, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me, man. Be well. We're going to have to have Sydney back on the show because after we turned the mics off, we talked for another couple hours and there were so many connections to so many other conversations. You know, we talked, I remember uh, one opus, uh, maybe season one, you talked about wanting to uh, join in the band and wanting to be a percussionist, but you got the one drum. To, you know, we, drum. We, we talked about, you know, more unique ways to retain young percussionists because obviously that wasn't your jam, just having that little snare drum, you know. And- and nor was it my father's. Right, right, right. That no, that as well. That's important. You know, talking about practice pads and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about um, his time at USC and some of the challenges he had, and the fact that he was putting me on to racism in the school of music that I went to. That I didn't have that sort of issue. My, you know, my chilling thought was. How many people, how many people on faculty told him, well, Garrett's doing fine. He doesn't think blah, 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 or da, 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 you know, or maybe fellow students or whatever, you know. Mm. So, you know, just hashing again, the fact that if it's not happening to you, that does not mean it's, it's not, not happening. happening. You know, um, we got on, uh, what, what we got on a government organization called ALEC that I would love to <laughs> tell y'all uh, more about. But anyway, um, huge shout out to um, Sydney Hobson for uh, taking the time. Definitely um, gonna gonna have him back uh, on the show to, to break down some more of this stuff. But um, for now, it's time. It's time for the triloquy. Fair warning. Um, I'm not nice, and I don't seek to be respectable. I'm not asking y'all for anything, because y'all can't and won't be both my savior and my oppressor. You get one life, and you all in this room have chosen profits over people, and that's pathetic. All right, Scott, so uh, before I get uh, into my main triloquy, um, we just revisited um, uh, those a few of the words by K.J. Brooks out of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we so we both kind of just saw this over this past week, you know, uh, separate from each other. What were your um, initial? <laughs> what were your initial reactions? Um, from, <laughs> first, my eyebrows went up, 
And then she kept going, and I had to go get the popcorn. <laughs> you had, you, it's one of those situations where you're walking around the house and you see it, and you're like, "Oh, well, I need to, I need to sit down." Right. Put, put <laughs> it, put it, put it this way. Put it this way. If I was one of the people that she was addressing, all you would have seen of me would be my chair spinning in a circle because I would have been like exit stage left. Right. I see what's coming, and it's gonna rain on your head. I'm a- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> As, thank you. Very, very good <laughs> reference. Um, Kwanis Floyd, shout out to Kwanis. She sent it to me <laughs> and, and uh, put in in her comment over text and put in the uh, in the text. I hope this brings you joy. So <laughs> when Kwanis texts me with a video that says, I hope it uh, brings you joy, I sit down immediately. So for folks who don't know, I'll put a little um, context for you. This article is coming from Upworthy. The title, 20-year-old K.J. Brooks named and shamed every official at a Kansas City police commissioner meeting. A little bit from the um, article. After years of advocating for racial justice and calling out police brutality and seeing little change in law enforcement and our justice system, some people are rightfully fed up. When complaints are met with inaction, protests are met with inaction, and direct action is met with inaction, maybe it's time to get specific and who needs to be held accountable for issues in law enforcement. So, what I get from that is this conversation of taking time, you know, um, going through certain channels. KJ is done. Mm-hmm. She's done. She's done waiting. And she went in she there was and measuring for everybody curtains. out. She was, oh, <laughs> you said she was measured for curtains. Yeah. She says this would make some great All right. luxury oh, yes. apartments All in right. here. And let's think about that. You know, let's think about if some of these huge spaces were turned, especially in this COVID era, were turned into housing for people living in these tents out here. You know, think of the radical change that we could make if people would stop sitting on their hands. And I'm sure there, uh, you know, Adele said that he read articles that since um, this um, event at the Board of Police Commissioners meeting, um, K.J. Brooks has been profiled by the police and, you know, protect her at all costs, please, because we, all we need is for something to have happened to her because of her noncompliance or whatever excuse that the police, you know, love to use. But I love the energy. I really wanted to make sure um, that I brought this in to the people today, Scott, because we need more of this in the workplaces. We need more of this in the the, in the concert halls, in the board meetings, everybody's having a Zoom panel. Some of y'all need to get cussed out over Zoom. I love that um, that we're really shifting into an era where people are calling specific people out so that they can be held accountable. You know, mm. I love it. Maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll call some people out. Um, <laughs> well, did it ever? Uh, say, not today. Did it ever say that there was one specific thing that set her off, or did she just show up to a public meeting to give a read on everybody? Well, I mean, again, and as this first um, paragraph sort of speaks to, KJ has been um, advocating for you know uh, racial justice uh, when it comes to police brutality for years now and hasn't seen anything. So, so she that's was the issue. right. So she she was ready going in. Uh, yeah, and she was reading from her phone too. So she had some notes. She was prepared. She right was on. Prepared. She. I mean, they don't call it reading for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so huge, huge, incredible shout out to my hero of the week, KJ Brooks. Let's keep it up. Let's spread that energy. Let's begin. You know, Maxine Waters said, "Let's get controversial," and I I, I agree with that. All right. Um, so my final little triloquy um, is to Brian 
Newhouse. So I read um, on the Internet, and for folks who don't know, Brian Newhouse uh, was former general manager of Classical Minnesota Public Radio, um, bravely retired early, you know, took an early uh, package because of, you know, budget cuts with COVID and all that stuff. In the process, made sure Triloquy was um, an, an independent project. I am, goodness gracious, I cannot tell you how thankful I am. Yeah. You know, for, for what he did there. Um, so um, there was this article that came out, you know, that talked about how retirement was not good enough for him. So he has a, a, a position with the Minnesota Orchestra now, who we have also addressed <laughs> on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, my first thought when I read the news was good for Brian. I mean, he's 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 one of the, the good ones out here. My second thought was. How are other people um, to know that when we're thinking about intentional hiring, when we're talking about diversifying boardrooms and staffs, you know, to have this news story about another older white man getting, you know, one of these positions of power? I, I'm not bringing this up to shame him or speak ill of him. Uh, again, I it's always my thanks and my gratitude to Brian Newhouse. I'm bringing him up in this triloquy to um, publicly announce to everyone that I will be inviting him on this podcast. And I want to put it on record here just so that if Brian Newhouse is someone who doesn't feel comfortable really engaging these things, you know, this is something that the people need to understand. I hope that Brian will come um, on this show um, for me to ask um, honest questions, no gotcha questions. I think the record has been made clear that, you know, he is someone that I respect and appreciate. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain conversations that um, we can have now that he's separated from Minnesota Public Radio that uh, the general dinner, the general discourse could benefit from, um, that the arts could benefit from, and that, you know, anyone really can benefit from. Think about the things that we could talk about. Think about the things that he experienced in that job, the challenges, the reason why he believed in a project like Triloquy, and how he, as this older um, white man that many will see as privileged taking another one of these positions in these arts organizations. In what ways is he different? In what ways is he going to help us um, move the needle and and try to make all of this survive? Con- considering we survive all this between the you know the violence that people are um, uh, uh, preparing for COVID, which hasn't gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna I wanna have that conversation. So uh, Brian, if you're listening to this, I hope you'll come on the show. I'll send you an email as well. But um, until then, um, be safe, everyone, and um, good luck to us all.